It's our custom here to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you will, please join me in doing that now. That is done set apart the Word of God from the Word of the Servant, sent to proclaim it. For the grass withers and the flowers will fade away, but the Word of the living God will endure forever. Brothers and sisters, now it's He here and heed it faithfully together. Ezra chapter 8, beginning at verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve, the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious, precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed in the hands of Miramoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with him were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At, those, at that time, those who had come from captivity... The returned exiles offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Thus far the reading of the word of God. Please pray with me. Lord and our God, we do thank you for your word, and we ask now that your same Holy Spirit, who inspired and preserved it, would now bless the reading and especially the preaching of it, that faith might be worked in our hearts, and that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would be glorified in the church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. I'd like to begin the sermon this morning by asking the question, What is precious to you, and what are you willing to do to protect it? What is precious to you, and what are you willing to do to protect it? When my family and I were making our move here from Florida to California, it took several of those gigantic rectangular containers called pods to get all of our stuff, three generations, seven bodies, one very important dog, 
uh, all cross country. Uh, some pods we considered more important than others, and we put our furniture in them. Other pods we deemed less important. They got the surfboards and the lawn equipment. But even more important stuff we put into our cars. But finally, our very most important treasure, that is to say our children and our dog, came with us on the plane. Uh, in hindsight, looking back at it, my wife and I had wished we could have put ourselves in the pods. <laughs> but we did check. It was illegal. Today we look at what is most valuable, not just in our sight, but ultimately in the sight of God, and again ask the question, what is he willing to do to protect it? Uh, You see the outline of the sermon there in your bulletin, and we'll begin to consider Ezra chapter 8, these verses, uh, first beginning by thinking about the way that God's people pray and fast. They have said in many places that desperate times call for desperate Measures in Ezra chapter 8. Again, we see the people of God in a desperate position. Uh, Even the leaders themselves have now found themselves in a rather tricky spot. They're about to embark on a four month journey. It is summertime in the Middle East. It is hot, it is dry. They'll have to travel through the desert, across hills, and through valleys in order to get where they're going all the way to Jerusalem. And there is a company of over 9,000 people in tow. This is quite a mob of people. We are told that there are not only uh, men and women, young and old, but even great treasure. A gigantic caravan of people and a gigantic mass of treasure. Now, we'll come back to that. But the most important treasure that they have with them is their lives, their own lives. And Ezra recognizes this is really a vulnerable move. This is going to be a tricky endeavor. In many respects, we begin to sense the pastoral side of Ezra in this chapter particularly uh, as the weight of responsibility for all of these people and all of God's treasure is now upon his shoulders. Behind the scenes, you could speculate and wonder if you're planning such a large move with such great riches How many conversations might have taken place? The leaders wondering how they would go about this. The wives wondering how will this work for us and our children. The Levites and the priests involved. What about all the gold and the temple treasure? The weight of such responsibility, some of us know, can even lead to sleepless nights. Worrying over the fate of his people. Surely Ezra might have done this. Perhaps even his own family. Many of you know uh, what it's like to bear the weight of certain responsibility and even to worry over it at times into the night. But Ezra chapter 8 actually does not describe Ezra worrying. It rather describes Ezra as praying. When the great burden of responsibility falls to him, where does he turn? Well, he turns to prayer and fasting. Now, I'm going to guess that the only word more unpopular than the word submission would be the word fasting. The least popular word, perhaps, in the Christian vocabulary, right? Uh, what do you think? Since I mentioned the word fasting, what begins to run through your mind? Or did we just hit the wall? Uh, did you just check out and, and begin to float away? In some ways, it's a hard subject to talk about in a world of self-exaltation and self-indulgence. Who wants to hear about prayer and fasting? They're contrary to 
uh, the age of the Spirit, and they're contrary to the flesh. But perhaps what we want the least is what we need the most. And so here in Ezra chapter 8, Ezra, in this desperate hour, calls for a fast. And notice the fast is to be done not simply by the leaders or Ezra himself, but the whole people will pause by the river for what appears to be a few days to humble themselves and to pray. To humble themselves. There again, another tremendous challenge. If we were honest and think about what is the point of prayer and fasting is exactly what it says here in our text, that the people might humble themselves through prayer and fasting. Uh, One of the greatest threats to the mission was pride. One of the greatest threats to the Christian life is pride. One of the greatest threats to my own Christian life certainly is pride. One of the greatest threats to the health and well-being of the church, broadly speaking, is pride. Pride wrecked us in the beginning of the Bible, right? When we wanted to be like God to a fault. And pride continues to be a great challenge even into Ezra chapter 8. But also what we see here is that God has a remedy for our pride. And that's exactly what we see. God has a way of bringing us down, making us small, and humbling us through a variety of situations. And so Ezra calls for prayer and fasting by the river Ahava. For some reason it makes me feel good whenever I say that word, Ahava. That the Spirit of God might work in them. And in many ways, you can see why books about Christian leadership are sometimes based on the character of Ezra. When they came to a bit of a tight spot, a difficult moment in the life of God's people, rather than panicking and freaking out, Ezra said, let's stop and let's pray. Let's even cut out the snacks. Let's humble ourselves and let's pray. That's leadership. And again, not just Ezra or the Levites and the priests, the entire caravan, the entire family of God. And the particular purpose of this prayer and fasting is given, to seek from God a safe journey, that God might spare us from enemies along the way and from ambushes. Uh, This prayer is made for themselves, their children, and their goods. There you can see not simply uh, the responsibility for the material treasure going to the temple, but for their own lives and the lives of their children. And Ezra even gives us an enhanced perspective as to why this prayer is needed. Ezra seems to have painted himself into a bit of a corner. Verse 22 makes it rather clear. He was ashamed to ask the king for an armed guard. Ezra had literally, with his own words, painted himself and the people of God into a tight corner. Ordinarily, such a venture, carrying not only letters, From the king, you see that towards the end where the commissions are mentioned that are given to the satraps and governors. But uh, this absolutely exhaustive amount of material treasure, these things would normally have an armed guard. This is like Air Force One traveling. An armed guard would go with them on such royal business to protect them and make sure that there would be no issues along the way. Uh, More valuable than the cargo Uh, more valuable than the people, is ultimately the reputation of the king, the one who's sending these great things. In a certain sense, the greater, therefore, the cargo, the greater the escort might be. But Ezra asked for no escort. In fact, uh, it's likely the case that he may even turn down the one that the king could have offered. Ezra's big mouth, you could say, got in a little bit of trouble. But is it a big mouth or great faith that we actually see here 
in this chapter. Notice what Ezra says, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him, and the power of His wrath against all who forsake Him. Is the problem here Ezra's big mouth, or is the issue here Ezra's great faith? If you have read ahead or know the book of Nehemiah pretty well, uh, you might be aware of a slight difference between Ezra and Nehemiah at this point. In Nehemiah, we actually see a similar uh, movement, and Nehemiah actually accepts the armed guard. But here, Ezra does not. And this makes the commentators wrestle a little bit or play with the question, uh, does this suggest that Ezra was a man of greater faith than Nehemiah? Ezra was really brave. Nehemiah, a little bit more of a wimp. Ezra said, I will take no help. Nehemiah says, sure, I'll accept the help. Well, that's arguably not the way that we ought to look at these two men and these two books as though Ezra had more faith than Nehemiah. Let me say it like this. The line between faith and wisdom at times can be paper thin. The line between faith and wisdom at times can be paper thin. Different situations test us and refine us in different ways, and different situations may even call for slightly different or nuanced reactions. In this case, Ezra had made a vow of sorts before this pagan king that God would be his shelter, his guardian, and his protector, and now it was time for Ezra to keep that vow. Ezra also knew what the book has been telling us now slowly and steadily. The good hand of God has been with his people. It's a beautiful phrase. It's not just the hand of God, but the good hand of God has been with his people. And in the book, we've heard that phrase now several times, at least three. Not only in the time of the exile, but the good hand of God was with Israel in the exodus. A similar dynamic at play now as they once again march through the wilderness, headed back to the promised land. The good hand of God it was that preserved them during the exile for all these many years. And now Ezra asks if the good hand of God might once more protect God's people as they were vulnerable. That's why they're now praying by the river Ahava. Faith is not fatalistic. Faith doesn't say God's sovereign, and therefore uh, there's nothing to think about. There's nothing to do. In other words, the sovereignty of God does not hinder the supplication of God's people. It actually enhances and encourages it encourages it. Faith is not fatalistic in saying, I trust God so much there's no reason to pray, but I trust God so much that I must. It's always a good time to pray, and sometimes it's even a good time to fast. You see that in the Bible in multiple places where the people of God pray. You see it in the Bible in multiple places. Even uh, the Son of God will not simply pray, but fast, as have the people of God. You even see it in our Book of Church Order of All Things and Directory for Public Worship. It talks about certain occasions when the people of God might be so humbled and challenged by a particular situation or a decision in front of them that is so significant that they should not simply pray, but even fast. It's always a good time to pray, and sometimes it's a good time to fast. Verse 23 ends the section well, noting not just what they did, but even more importantly, what God did in response. So again, verse 23, So we fasted and implored our God for this, and it's very important, and he listened to our entreaty. Each section in this chapter ends with a little uh, punctuation point like that, at least from here to the end of the chapter 
they paused, they prayed, they fasted, and God listened to their entreaty, which brings us to our second point. God's people guarding precious things. Now the second section, just to be completely honest and upfront, is as tedious as it is important, and it is both. It is tedious, and it is important. But remember again, Ezra is in many ways an accountant. The ancient version of a CPA, a bean counter, a bookkeeper, a list maker. Some of you found those terms complimentary. Others found them insulting. We can talk about it later. Ezra sets apart 12 leading priests, possibly representing the 12 tribes, at least the idea of wholeness. And then comes the fun. They begin weighing out to them uh, the silver, the gold, and the vessels for the temple itself. And because Ezra is a precise man, attentive to detail in the extreme, he lists exactly how much and to whom everything is given. This is like taking inventory before a trip, and they'll do the same thing at the end of the trip. This is like being at the docks when a great big shipping container is about to go away, asking the question, uh, what all is going, and on the other side, checking to make sure that it all got there. To say it simply, it's a way of making sure that nothing is lost, and that is very important, that nothing is lost. We are dealing with precious cargo here, gifts given not only by the king, but even by his royal governors and rulers, and gifts also given to the people. And not only are they great in their value, worth a lot, they are to be dedicated to the house of God in Jerusalem. So the list of things is given. You can see some of it there beginning in verse 26. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver. This is a lot of talent. And the silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks. This is a ridiculous amount of treasure. It's hard to appreciate in the English how much gold and silver and other things Uh, we're talking about here. So so much so that some of the more critical commentators actually wonder if this is a textual error. Almost as though saying, there's no way it could have been this much. Why? Uh, Because uh, the number of talents of silver alone here would be like 34 and a half tons. So kids are trying to figure out what we're talking about. The largest land mammal supposedly is the African element. Element. My notes say elephant, so I'm going to go with that. The African elephant is the largest land mammal, weighing up to seven tons. So that's like saying uh, there's about five African elephants of silver alone. It's a gigantic amount of silver alone, then the gold, then the bronze, then the other things. You get the point. Who can carry that? how, How do you move that hundreds of miles through the desert? up and down hills and and through valleys. Now you see why Ezra is praying. Caravan carrying this kind of treasure would be like a glow-in-the-dark target both by day and by night. Just imagine if light hit this much gold and silver, uh, it would be just bright and shining. And even by night, what a wonderful temptation to go and to attempt to steal it. Not only were they carrying this large amount of material, which would make them low and slow, uh, they were also accompanied by women and children. This is a slow-moving caravan full of fantastic treasure, a pirate's daydream. And not only that, 
but they are unarmed, unescorted. Now you can see why Ezra maybe is staying up a little bit at night. Why he's calling the people to pray and to fast. And so he entrusts the priests with all this treasure and he listed on paper. They would guard the temple treasure without an armed escort. escort. And he tells them in verse 28, as he sets them apart from the task, you are holy and the things that you carry are holy. They were holy and set apart. The vessels and the people were a treasure in the sight of God. And they were worth being protected. Verse 29, guard them and keep them until you weigh them back out. The point of saying weigh them back out is when you get to the other side, uh, you will do then at the end exactly what you did here. You will weigh to show this is exactly how much was sent. And you will weigh again to say this is exactly how much was received. That language of guarding, keeping is, is really quite beautiful language. We first meet it in the Garden of Eden when Adam is called to keep the garden and he fails to do so, he's kept kicked out of the garden and God himself becomes the guardian of his own things that are holy. When he sets an angel in front of the door, the way back into the garden, there with a sword that turns every way, guarding the way back in to the tree of life. God is the guardian of things that are holy to him. And like a sword drawn sword-drawn priest guarding the Holy of Holies. The Levites are to guard these holy things in Ezra chapter 8. And so they did. And you come down to the end of this section, verses 31 through 34, record their successful mission when everything is weighed back out. And so they would leave from Ahava for Jerusalem. Imagine now, low and slow, tons and tons and tons, elephants and elephants of silver and gold, and four months later, they arrive safe and sound, with women and children in tow and unarmed and unharmed. The names of the priests who guarded on the way are given. The names of the priests who received it on the other way are given. Why does Ezra again give us these tedious details? Well, as I told you, they're important, not just because Ezra is a man of detail. It's his way of saying, all is accounted for, and nothing was lost. All that was given was safely received. If you're part of that caravan, it would seem like a virtual miracle, or perhaps a better way of saying it, God had done another exodus. The people of God have once more traveled through the wilderness, low, slow, and unarmed by anything other than God himself. A great treasure was in their midst, but there was no military Escort. They were not only unarmed, they were untrained with all kinds of threats around them. We were told not only enemies, but ambushes along the way. And there again, they arrived safe and unharmed. Nothing was lost and no one was lost. And so the last three words of verse 34 really say it all. Everything was recorded. When they prayed and fasted, God listened to their entreaty. When you get to the end of this section, verse 34, the weight of everything was recorded. It's a safe journey. Verse 21, uh, if you look at it carefully, uh, when Ezra prays for a safe journey, it's literally requesting uh, a straight way. It's language that we hear elsewhere in Scripture, like in Isaiah 40, to make 
the way straight, the path smooth. God had made a way even when Israel and Ezra could see no way. And it leads us to our final point. God's people respond to God's salvation and protection. So now having thought about this, thousands of people, the slow-moving caravan, four months in the Middle Eastern summer, up and down valleys and hills, what do you think they did when they got there? Well, they, they did exactly what you and I would do when they got there. They took naps. They at least took a few days off. Verse 32 says, when they got there, they remained in Jerusalem for three days, and then they counted out all the stuff. Uh, it would appear that the Israelites were utterly tired and exhausted when they arrived. They were leaning into the Sabbath. Ezra tells us the exact day that they left and the exact day that they arrived relative to the Sabbath. Uh, you, can, uh, you can see why they took uh, the time to rest and then celebrate, which is exactly what they did. They worshiped God with burnt offerings. They worshiped God with sin offerings, 12 male goats representing the tribe. You can see uh, the, the parallel at the beginning, the 12 priests responsible for all the things that are being delivered. Here at the end, 12 male goats offered on behalf of all Israel, a signal of wholeness begun and wholeness completed, like bookends on either side of a bookshelf. All that God began to do in them, he completed safe and sound. Though Israel was a sinful people, God saved them. Though Israel was a weak people, God delivered them. Though Israel was a helpless people, God protected them, and nothing that was precious in the sight of God was lost. Everything was recorded. It's all there. Even the things that belonged to the king. His official correspondence, his letters were delivered to the king's satraps, that's mayors, and the governors of the, of the region. And those officials not only received the king's letters, it says uh, in the last verse of our text here, in verse 36, and they aided the people in the house of God. That's the third time something very positive is said. We prayed and God heard us. We got there and everything was recorded. We delivered over even the, the king's correspondence and his officials aided us in the work of the house of God. Look how much Israel had to celebrate. They went from being tired to celebrating, if you will, to worshiping. And, and why? When you drill down and think about it, it's actually a beautiful question. It's exactly as Ezra said. The good hand of God was with them. Notice again verse 22. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And that's exactly what happened. Israel sought God at Ahava. They slowed down, they prayed, they not only prayed, they fasted, they sought after God, he heard them, he listened to them, he acted on their behalf. That's what they had to celebrate. It was not the priests who were ultimately the guardians and protectors of all this great wealth, or even the people, the men, the women, and the children. It was God himself who was the great guardian and protector the one who is keeping his own. And because God is the guardian of his people, because God is the guardian of his own treasure, nothing is lost. If you think Ezra pays attention to details, how much more does God? If you think Ezra keeps record of all who began, how much more 
does God. If you think Ezra can tell the great value of gold and silver, what is more precious in the sight of God? Please drink that question down deeply. What is truly precious in the sight of God? Is it gold and silver? Kids, is it elephant-sized pieces of metal that shine in the light? And the answer is ultimately no. In heaven, those materials are what they make streets out of. And nobody's trading them because there's no need. But something is precious in the sight of God. And not only is something precious in the sight of God, something is holy unto the Lord, and that is his people. This is a beautiful chapter. In Ezra chapter 8, we see that ultimately, it's God's people who are his treasure. God doesn't need gold. God's not that interested in bronze and silver. His people are his treasure, and his people are his temple. The story of Israel traveling through the wilderness in this gigantic, vulnerable caravan, in many ways, is a repeat. It's a do-over in history. You've seen this story before. You know these details because you've heard them. Not only have they done it before, uh, it will be done again. This is not the last time a caravan through the wilderness will travel. And one greater than Ezra will be the one to do it. In other words, another Israelite is going to make his way through the wilderness and the valley. One greater than Ezra will bear the burden of God's people upon his heart. Someone who will do more than just lie awake at night, worrying about them as you and I might often do. One who will, yes, indeed, pray and even fast on behalf of his people that they might be safely delivered, saved, guarded, and kept. But one who could do something that no Israelite in history would ever do, and that is perfectly obey every word of the living God. One who would not have to offer a sacrifice for sins on behalf of himself, but would rather offer a sacrifice of sins for others. And one who, and this is very important, one who, unlike Israel and Ezra, in Ezra chapter 8, one who was not spared from harm. You know who I'm talking about. And it's Jesus. It is Jesus who will not be spared. It is Jesus who will indeed be ambushed. It is Jesus who will be not be spared in the sight of God. Because why? Because you, beloved, are so precious, so precious in the sight of God that God did not spare his son for you. So precious are you in the heart of even Jesus himself that he did not spare himself but freely offered himself up for you. And why? Why would God not spare his son? Why would Jesus not spare his own life? The answer, it's very simple. It's because you, beloved, are precious to God. More precious than gold. More precious than silver. More precious than elephants. More precious than a temple. You are his temple. And you are his treasure. Holy, beloved, and precious in the sight of God. And do you know what he says about you? Not only are your names recorded, not a one of you will be lost. Not a single one. The details show us not simply that Ezra was a little OCD. That's not the point. 
The details show God will not lose that which is precious to him. He will guard it. He will protect it. He will spare it from the evils of this world. And he will deliver it everlastingly into his temple. That's the point of Ezra chapter 8. We are those that are precious in his sight. He will lose none of us whose names are written in his book of life. And yes, again, he is very attentive to those details. And the proof of it is that he sent his son and did not spare his son, but freely gives you with his son all things, beginning with the very same spirit who raised his son and guided his son, so that even now, beloved, as you and I do find ourselves walking through a wilderness, hills and valleys, sometimes moving low and slow, threat by night, heat by day, he is always there to protect us. Because God guards what is holy and precious to him. And if he guarded the way back into the tree of life, if he set guardians around his temple and even the treasure that would enter into it, how much more, beloved, is he guarding you? Wherever you go, whatever ambush seeks to overtake you. And again, why? It's very, very simple. It's because he loves you. And that's what his love does. And how should we respond to his love? Exactly the way Israel did with worship. With genuine worship from the heart. With faith that sometimes bends to the elastic situations we find ourselves in at different moments in life. And yes, with prayer. And even at special times, as seems fitting, with fasting. God's goodness, even his sovereignty, should not drive us away from him. Saying that God is sovereign should not quiet our prayers, it should enhance and invigorate our prayers. And the goodness of God, the fact that he is for those who seek him, should even on occasion cause us to seek him, not simply with prayer, but even with fasting. In a world of self-exaltation and self-indulgence, being humbled through prayer and fasting is not a bad thing to contemplate. Why? Because these things make ourselves small, And make God very big. So let us humble ourselves and seek God. And in the end, what do you find? It's actually the very best way to protect ourselves and those things that are precious to us. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we love you. Because you have first loved us. At times, Lord, it takes a little bit of work to begin to see then the details of these Old Testament stories. You are showing us the great love story that you have between yourself and your people. And the great way in which all that we read in Ezra chapter 8 gives way to an even better love story of Jesus who came into this world not to be spared, but that we might be spared through him. And so we thank you, Lord, that we have in him such a great shepherd of our souls. Uh, There's a hymn that says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And Lord, such it is for the people of God. Some of us have passed through many dangerous valleys and hills. And others of us have felt ambushed along the way in one fashion or another. But how many of us, the Lord, could say that you have been our guardian and our protector But Lord, if we were honest, we would all say, beginning with myself, that we do not pray nearly enough. And even the very idea of fasting can seem rather foreign. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to more and more think highly 
of these means of grace, of this ministry of prayer, that on occasion really might actually benefit ourselves, our souls, and our families. And we pray, Lord, that you give us a heart similar to the people here in Ezra chapter 8, that in response to the many great ways that you have saved us, and even the small uh, daily providences by which you have upheld us, that we might respond not only with faith, but even with worship. Help us to do that even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.